Judges chapter 13. We're going to move back into our study through Judges. We began last January, went through the end of May, and then we spent all summer and, and September walking through a family series, and then we did a stewardship series, and then we did a short uh, evangelism series where um, I spent three Sundays this, pa- this month, this past month actually, this is October 1st, how about that, and um, shared with you how you can, in a very simple way, in a conversational way, share the gospel with others. And, and so just speaking of that, I just want to remind you that uh, the three circle scars that we used this past month, those are not just for September. These are for you to continue to pray for the people that are on your list, try to continue to engage them and, and lead them to faith in Jesus. I, one of the things I love about this past Sunday is that uh, when we're intentional, we can see great things happen. And so when we expect much, we, we oftentimes get much. And so let's expect God to do wonderful things, great things in our relationships as we pray for people who are lost and seek to share the gospel with them uh, on a daily basis. Judges chapter 13, we're going to move into uh, the latter part of this book now as we really come into the home stretch here and look at the last judge uh, that's presented here in this chapter. And as we do so, we're going to see some increasing wickedness in the, in the lives of God's people. In fact, as we look, and look at this 12th judge, Samson, uh, Hebrews talks about him being a faithful man. He's in the hall of faith, and yet as you look at his life, his life is messed up. It is full of evil and wickedness and, and falling into temptation, really not even falling, jumping into temptation in his life. And so you think about the destructiveness that we have in our life. One of the most difficult things to observe is to watch someone destroy his or her life, right? That's one of the most difficult things for us to do is to watch someone destroy themselves. I mean, have you ever seen someone with destructive behavior or their poor choices wrecking their life. Anybody in, their, in, in here say, yeah, I've experienced watching that. Yeah, I think we all should probably raise our hands this morning because we either have family members or we know we have friends or we know someone in our life who through their poor choices and their destructive behavior has wreaked havoc upon themselves and also are on those around them. And so we all know someone like that. We've all had to watch that saga play out in another person's life. Those stories really, if we think about it, hit close to home because it's probably someone pretty close to us where this has happened. Maybe even as I ask that question, have you, do you know someone that's gone through that, you immediately go to yourself because you can reflect back upon a time in your life or maybe even now where your life is not where you wish it was or it's not where you want it to, to be back then. And so you thought of yourself and the horrible saga that you've had to endure. So the truth is, destructive stories are the reality of living in this world. It's the reality of living in a fallen and rebellious world. See, one of the things that I love about God's Word is that this reality is not sugar-coated. I'll be honest, the last couple weeks as I've been thinking and praying and studying through the life of Samson and reading these four chapters, i just kind of been sitting back and and making this kind of statement. How in the world do I preach on the life of a man who every step that he took, he fell into greater and greater wickedness? What is the lesson to learn from that? And yet God's Word doesn't sugarcoat his pitfalls. It doesn't sugarcoat his lifestyle. Instead, the Bible presents a clear and real description of the sinfulness that is so pervasive within humanity. 
It's this reality that we find in the lives of those presented to us in this book called Judges. And so far we've discovered in this book a people who preferred worshiping the idols of their enemies over the God of their fathers. I don't know about you, but when I read this book, I'm looking obviously from long ways out in the future. I'm looking back on this with a 2020 vision, and I can see the pitfalls. I can see where they went wayward, and I asked the question, how can a people who saw God and heard the stories of what God did in the Exodus ever walk away from that God? And yet that's exactly what they did. They were full of wickedness. They preferred the enemies that their God defeated and the gods of those people to their own God who led them through the exodus. We've seen their deception. We've seen assassination. We've seen fearfulness. And we've seen gross idolatry so far. We've seen wide-scale syncretism as these people, God's people, syncretized with the peoples of the nations they were supposed to be eradicating. We've seen... Uh, foolish vows in Jephthah as he came back making that foolish vow and had to sacrifice his own daughter. So we've seen all of these things in these first 12 chapters. But as we move forward, we're going to continue to see even more things than that. We're going to see lust like never before in Samson. We're going to see sexual immorality. Uh, We're going to see fits of rage. We're going to see, again in Samson, a disregard for the God's calling upon his life, God's blessing in his life. We're going to see religious perversion, homosexuality. We're going to see the dismemberment of a body and those parts of that body sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. On top of that, we're going to see genocide as a response to what took place. All of these things are going to happen in these last final chapters of the book of Judges. So we see here that these are stories that one would not expect to find in the Bible. We would expect to see something like this in a horror novel, right? We would expect to read this in, 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 a, in a Grisham book. We would expect to read these in something we'd find in a library, not in the Word of God. But these stories are the reality of living in a rebellious world where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judge ends. ends. In Judges 21-25, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so let me just remind you, it's been several weeks since we've been walking through the book of Judges. Let me remind you of what's going on here by way of a little history lesson. When you think about the book of Judges, we see here a historical account. Few periods in Israel's history are as important as the time of Judges. I mean, it's these centuries that we read here where it sets up the nation of Israel. We see that the nation of Israel takes a wrong turn that led to its downfall and nearly to its destruction. We see the nation of Israel struggling to grab hold of the land that God had promised them. We see that the apostasy that we find in later generations has its genesis right here in the book of, Gen- in the book of Judges. We see them chasing after Baal, and all of that chasing after Baal is going to come to a culmination. Later on, we see when the nation of Israel is carried off into exile because of their forsaking of the God of Israel. All of that began here in the Judges. And so there's much in Judges to sadden the heart of the reader. Perhaps no book in the Bible witnesses so clearly to our frailty as humans. But there's also unmistakable signs of divine compassion and divine grace 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's personified here. I mean, we have a wicked people who continue to chase after other gods, but it's God who chases after them. We're going to see that even in the life of Samson. So there's much in Judges to sadness, but we see the grace of God overwhelmingly overflowing into our lives. And so it may be that the reader of Judges today would look at this and heed the warning and also be able to appreciate the grace of God that's, that's laid out here. That we would long for a Savior in our own lives. So what's going on here? The period of the Judges... As you know, it takes place after the death of Joshua. Joshua is the succeeder, the one who uh, uh, succeeds uh, Moses. He leads the people of God into the promised land, him and Caleb. And then after that, we see the, the, the tribes continuing to conquer the land and to acquire the land for themselves. Unfortunately, they became content. Rather than to possess the land, they became content to settle down among the Canaanites and they lost the incentive to possess the whole land. And so Judges records the fact, this fact and its effect, that they mixed with the peoples, they married with the peoples, and we see how that played out in the lives of future generations as they syncretized with the Canaanites. Well, what does this word syncretize mean? What does it mean to, what does syncretism mean? It's a meshing of two people. You've got the people of God, Israel, who were called of God, given the word of God, the command of God, the laws of God, and God told them to go in, possess the land, and eradicate the peoples from the land. That means kill them all. And we look at that from today's perspective, and we think, how could God ever do that? And yet God told him to do that because that was his way to bring divine judgment upon a people who were rebellious and haters of God. God's people, Israel is his chosen people. Are they sinful? Yes. Are they sinless? Absolutely not. But God, in his grace, chose them and told them to go and possess the land. And by doing so, he was using them to bring judgment against the wicked, evil people there in the land of Canaan. And so this was a divine judgment against those people, but also by eradicating the people from the land, it was also a prophylactic approach to it. In other words, as God told Israel to eradicate the people from the land, to destroy them, it was a way to safeguard their own spiritual health. Because if there's no longer a wicked idolatrous people there, there's not going to be the temptation or the typical temptation to lead them astray. And yet they did not do that, and thus their hearts were drawn to the gods of Canaan or the gods of the Canaanites. And so they worshipped Baal and the whole pantheon of Baal worship. These Israelites... Not far removed from the exodus, they saw and heard the stories of what God did there in the wilderness. But as they entered the land of Canaan, they forgot that the God who did all of that in the wilderness is the God who can do all of that in the land of Canaan. And so they chose to worship the gods of Canaan, Baal worship, thinking that their fertility would give them everything that they need to perpetuate life and and, and futility there or, or fruitfulness there. And they disregarded the God of their fathers. And so as we seek to understand judges, we must keep in mind that Israel was God's special and chosen people. They were the descendants of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed. They were to be the light 
to the world. They were to be the ones through whom the truth of the gospel would be proclaimed. God had told and promised Abraham that his descendants would have a land to possess. And after the exodus, Moses began that. Joshua and Caleb continued that. And that leads us up to where we find ourselves now in Judges chapter 13. Well, who were these Canaanites? Let's talk specifically about them for just a moment. As you know, the Canaanites were an idolatrous pagan people. Their religion was nothing more than a, 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 a cult designed to enlist the aid of Baal. And so they would, they would use cult prostitutes. They would engage in, in, in immorality to try to appease Baal and, and the Baal pantheon to bring fertility to the land. And so this was a wicked, animistic type of cult. Israel, with its austere morals and its faith, was to be that divine agent that I just spoke of. They were to rid the land of the wickedness. But what we see taking place through the book of Judges is not the eradication of the peoples. It is the Canaanization of the people of God. Canaan influenced Israel much more than Israel influenced Canaan. And so this is true in our lives as well, is it not? Next week, my plan is is we're going to look at the life of Samson a little bit closer. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of here's a man of God who smelled like the world. Here's a man of God, a, a man that had God's calling upon his life, had God's blessing upon his life, had God's anointing upon his life. But everything about Samson's life did not look like God other than when he was fighting, it looked and smelled and tasted and seemed nothing more than the world. And so we have the history of two centuries here presented in the book of Judges, indicating the principles of the Lord and his dealing with his people. And in this book, we see these four cycles. And literally, as we move from chapter 1 all the way to the end, chapter 21, we see these four cycles diminishing. In other words, the first cycle is the apostasy where the people of God would fall away. Then God would would sell them into a a neighboring nation and they would be thrown into servitude. And then in that servitude, the people of God would realize their situation, begin to cry out and supplicate to God. And then the Lord would send a deliverer, a savior or a judge. As we look here in chapter 13, we're going to see the people of God are in servitude. They, have, they are experiencing apostasy as they've walked away from God. But there is no crying out for the Lord. And yet the Lord still sends them a deliverer. And so let's look at these, this story and this recurring cycle here in the book of Judges. Looking at the life of Samson. Let me just say this uh, before we get to Samson. We're going to see here a contrasting aspect to Samson's life. We started with Othniel. You remember Othniel back in January? Othniel was this great judge. We don't see a lot told about him. But we do see this. that The people of God did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And God raised up for them a judge, a deliverer, by the name of Othniel. And he delivered the people of God. And he led the people of God to faithfulness. Here we're going to see in chapter 13 through 16, the people of God walking in, in, in disobedience to the Lord. They're not crying out to him, and yet God still raises up a deliverer, and his name is Samson. So what do we learn about Samson this morning? Let me give you three things that we see in this Samson account uh, fairly quickly, and then I want to segue into what this means for us. What do we see in a greater deliverer 
for our lives. First thing we see in Samson's account is this. We see an unlikely setting for deliverance. An unlikely setting for deliverance. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Here we see them walking away from God, and God sells them into captivity. He sells them into bondage for 40 years. Samson narratives have as their background the earlier part of the Philistine oppression. If you remember back last spring, we talked about in chapter 10, that God there in chapter 10, verse 7, tells us that there are two things happening at this point in the history of Israel. We've got an invading army from the people of Ammon, and you've got an invading army from the people of the Philistines, Philistia. And so they are coming in and attacking the people of God. Now, the Ammonite attack is much more brutal, it's much more fierce than the Philistines. The Philistines are a little bit more subtle. It's more of intermarriage. It's more of uh, treaties and things of that nature. And so the Bible deals with the Ammonite threat before it deals with the greater long-term threat of the Philistines. And so here in chapter 13, we move now to the Philistine threat. This menace was the greater threat because it wasn't so uh, in your face. It wasn't so aggressive. It was more insidious. It wasn't this aggression of the Moabites and the Canaanites, Midianites, and the Ammonites. It's, letter, it's rather replaced by infiltration through marriage and infiltration through trade. The Philistine rule over Israel doesn't appear to be onerous really at all at this early stage. It's only because of what, we're going to see this, it's only because of what God does in this situation that leads it to this aggressive state that we see later played out with Samson, even all the way to King David. And so what we see here in the early stages of chapter 13 are two peoples dwelling relatively peacefully together. So how is this happening? Well, it's the syncretism. Syncretism has fully set in, <coughs> excuse me, as the people of God have become acquainted and acclimated with the fact that they are living side by side with the people that should not be there. Living together, the evil and the righteous, not from their own sinless perfection, but because of what God has said about them, the people of God are God's righteous, called out people. The people of the Philistines are God's wicked enemies, and yet we see them living side by side in the land that God has given to Israel. And so Israel has fully embraced Philistine culture. They fully embrace cohabitation with their enemies. And this is seen... By what we don't see in verse 1. What is absent in verse 1 here? Look at it. The people of Israel again do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gives them in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What's absent? A cry for help. There's no cry for help here from the people of God. They're silent in this matter. They care not for their situation. They like their situation. They're happy with their situation. You see, in earlier servitude accounts, I mentioned Othniel earlier. If we were to go to uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 9, we would see there that the people of God cry out for help. Lord, we're in bondage. Lord, we're being devastated. Lord, we're being run over by our captives. This is not where we belong. We are your people. We should have experiencing your blessing. And so, Lord Jesus, please come and fix us. That's not present here, right? Instead, they're happy. They're not even thinking about the fact, uh, about the fact that they are living and cohabiting with the enemy. 
reminds me of how often in our own Christian lives we are settled to live alongside wickedness in our own lives. Settled to live alongside that which is evil, that which is an affront to the sovereignty and the righteousness of a holy God in our own lives and in our own homes. We are oftentimes just like Israel during the days of Samson, cohabiting with the enemy. But what does God do? He begins to raise up a deliverer, much like what he did in the days of Othniel and Ehud and other judges that we have already studied through this great book. And so we see here an unlikely setting for deliverance. The second thing I want you to see is an unlikely Savior to deliver. We see in Samson an unlikely Savior who will at least attempt... To begin, he's going to attempt to begin the deliverance of the people of God. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 13. The Bible says, There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. And she, her response is probably this, No kidding. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. Thank you for reminding me, Mr. Angel, that I am barren and without child. But look what he says next to her. But you shall conceive and bear a son. So he brings hope. Therefore, verse 4, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of God. Of the Philistines. Now, if you want an argument for for uh, life in the womb, there is a simple argument for life in the womb. As God says that the baby you will carry, he's going to be a Nazarite. He is to be set apart from me. And this doesn't begin when he comes out of the womb. This begins in the womb. And so God here is raising up or leading them to a Savior, providing for them a Savior who will begin to deliver the people. Of God. Now, why is he doing this? It's not because they cried out for a deliverer. We just addressed that. The people of God do not ask for someone to deliver them. They don't think they need to deliver. They don't think that their situation is bad. They probably like the commerce. They like the trade. They like the financial situation that they're in. They're able and satisfied with living side by side with the enemy. They've completely syncretized their lives with the enemy. But God here is not satisfied with their situation. He's not content with where they are at. And so we see here God doing something amazing. We see here God providing an unlikely Savior who will begin to deliver the people of God. Now, how is he unlikely? Well, first of all, Samson was born to a mother who could not have a child. It wasn't that she just had not had a child. This is a woman who could not have a child. The Bible says she was barren. She was unable to bear children. And so Samson, by the fact that he's here, is a miracle in and of itself. He's an unlikely savior because he comes from one who could not have a child. On top of that, he's an unlikely deliverer because the people of God did not ask for it. They didn't want it, yet God still provided. He's the, un, he's the most unlikely Savior to deliver for those reasons. He wasn't desired and his birth was not expected. But that leads us to a third thing I want you to see and that is we see in Samson an unlikely story of deliverance. Look at chapter 14. 
Now, I'm highlighting uh, uh, these four chapters this morning. We're just going to read these few segments here. But in the first four verses of chapter 14, we see the beginnings of Samson's downfall. Look at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now, if that was my son, I'd take him outside. And I would wear his backside out for back-talking his dad. But he's pretty direct in his command to his father. And his mom and dad give in. Look at verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. I want you to clue in on that statement. Remember, Judges ends... With the statement that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samson here says, this Philistine woman, this woman of the enemy, get her from me for she is right in my eyes. Not right in the eyes of the Lord, not right in the eyes of my parents. It's what I want and when I want it. Look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know. That it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, what's going on here? We are seeing an unlikely story of deliverance. Israel here displayed little discomfort, as I've already said, with the oppression and the influence that's coming from the Philistines. And even Samson, the Savior that God had sent to deliver Israel. We need to keep in mind chapter 13 and his miraculous birth. How this barren woman was able to have a son. And God gave these very specific commands for this young boy when he was born. What to eat, what not to eat, what to touch, what not to touch, where to go, where not to go. All of those things were a part of this Nazarite vow. It wasn't just for a short period of time. It was for his entire life, even in the womb. So we need to keep in mind who Samson is. Samson was the Savior that God had sent to deliver Israel. And yet this Savior, this judge, showed little concern for his personal holiness, not to mention the nation's holiness. If you read chapters 14, 15, and 16, what you see in Samson's life, this Nazarite who is not to eat certain things, not to drink certain things, not to touch certain things, not to go certain places, is doing all of those things that he was not supposed to do. He didn't care about his personal holiness. He didn't care about the nation's holiness. He fraternized with the Philistines and disregarded his calling upon his life. He sought out, for example, a Philistine wife that we read here in chapter 14. We see later in this same chapter that he's going down to Timnah to get married to this young lady. And there on that way, on that road, a lion comes out to attack him. And apparently because of his strength, he grabs the lion and rips him apart. He goes on to the thing, he comes back, and later on he sees inside that dead lion a swarm of bees and a hive of honey. He takes the honey and he eats it. So he breaks his Nazarite vow by eating and touching something that is dead. On top of that, we see him visiting a prostitute. We see him cohabiting with Delilah, which eventually led to his demise. So both Samson and Israel were a spiritual and moral mess. They were in rebellion against God, and it's against the 
this backdrop, however, that God sets the scene for deliverance. See, the human deliverer might have been a mess and in reality brought greater oppression upon his own people, but God would deliver them. He used Samson's lust. He used Samson's fits of rage. He used Samson and his entire life to provoke Israel and to provoke the Philistines into battle. That's what God tells us here in verse 4. You see, Samson wants this woman. He desires this woman. His parents argue with him. They finally give in to his request. And God, in all of that, is orchestrating the events, not for Samson, but in order to save and to bring about a deliverance for his people that wouldn't culminate until King David. If you go back to chapter 13, when the angel of the Lord is talking to Manoah's wife, He says in verse 5, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. We would expect to read in Judges that an immediate delivery takes place because that's what we've seen in Othniel, Ehud, Barak. We've seen that in Jephthah. We've seen this immediate defeat of the people of God. But the Philistine culture was so integrated and so influencing the people of Israel that it was going to take a long time for that stuff to be worked out. And so God had to provoke the people of Israel and to provoke the people of the, of, of the Philistines into battle so that there would become a rift and a wedge between the two. God was going to wait until a greater and a better deliverer, that of King David, to destroy this enemy once and for all. So the story of Samson is a very unlikely story. And yet I want you to, to know this morning that we see his name recorded in the Hall of Faith. He was a man of faith. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But what do we learn about this? What do we learn in the story of Samson and how does it transpose into our own lives? So let me say this. Let me let me kind of move our thoughts in a different direction. The story of Samson, the unlikely, is a story similar to a greater Savior who would come centuries later. In fact, what we see in the life of Samson in in some way is reminiscent of what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we don't find in the Lord Jesus Christ is a man who's given to his lust, a man given to his passions, a man who's given to sexual immorality. We don't see any sin at all in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do see similarities in these two deliverers. For instance, three things. In the Lord Jesus, it was an unlikely setting for deliverance when he arrived. See, when Jesus came upon the scene, it was an unlikely setting for deliverance, much like the time of Samson. What do I mean by that? When Jesus was born, there was a strong messianic emphasis among the people of God. They longed for a Messiah. But those who were longing for a Messiah were not longing for Jesus, otherwise they would not have put him on the cross. What the people of God, the nation of Israel, was longing for when Jesus was born into this world was not for God to come and to forgive their sins and lead them into a life of repentance and faithfulness. It was longing for God to raise up a King David-like figure who would throw off the arm of Rome. Right? They wanted out from under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so the setting for deliverance when Jesus arrived was a very unlikely setting. Second thing here is he was an unlikely savior to deliver. 
The Jews, again, wanted to be out from under Rome's rule. And so they wanted that David-type figure. They wanted someone to lead them out into battle against Rome. They wanted someone to stand up and slay the giant. They wanted someone to walk out in victory like David did. But Jesus was not that figure. Jesus was not a military man. Jesus did not come from a prominent family. Jesus didn't come from a popular town. Jesus was a nobody from the backside of nowhere. He was a carpenter, not a military leader. And yet Jesus was the Son of God, an unlikely Savior who would deliver the people of God. There's a third thing that's very similar to Samson. That is, he was an unlikely, or his was an unlikely story of deliverance. See, rather than leading the people to battle against Rome, Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice. He offered himself as a sacrifice to the great oppressor. The people of God wanted him, if he is the Messiah, to march out with a sword and a shield and with an army behind them and defeat the enemy. Jesus said, the only enemy that I'm here to defeat is the real enemy. And that is Lucifer, that is Satan, that is the devil, that is the sin in your life. And I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice. I'm going to fight the battle myself. And I'm not going to do it with a sword. I'm going to do it with my own precious blood. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to great to defeat the great oppressor that is sin. And in doing so, the very people Jesus came to deliver nailed him to a cross. It is in a very unlikely story of deliverance. You don't watch movies often with that type of plot. We don't read books very often with that sort of plot. It is a very unlikely story of deliverance. So what does this mean for us today? Samson and those in Judges were a sinful mess. In many ways, we are just like those that we read about here in the book of Judges. We walk in step with the world. The culture around us influences us more than the culture of God. We become our own worst enemy as our sinful decisions destroy our lives and they destroy our families and those who are around us. And we dare not put our trust and faith in another person for help because they're just as much of a mess as we are. You see, what we see in the story here of Samson and what we see in the story of the gospel is that we do not put our faith and trust in a human. We put our faith and trust in God. He is the only one to deliver us. He's the only one who can change our wicked hearts. He's the only one who can take our brokenness and put us back together. He's the only one who can fix our mess. There's only one Savior that we must look to. This deliverer is good. He's not like Samson. He's not like the other deliverers that we see in Judges who are flawed. This Savior, this judge, took upon himself our judgment. And 2,000 years ago, he offered himself as that perfect and holy sacrifice on a cross. He took your punishment for your sin. He took your punishment for your sin. His death paid the penalty for it all. And so today we can stand forgiven. Today we can be delivered from a sinful nature. We can be transformed by the life of Jesus Christ. He is an unlikely Savior, but he's a good one. This morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I I don't know if you're in relationship with Jesus or if you are in relationship with Jesus that you're walking at a guilty distance or maybe you, you would 
you would describe your walk with the Lord today as hot. You know, if, if it's a scale of 1 to 10, you're at 9.5 and, and your heart's beating for the Lord Jesus. You're kind of like King David, a man or a woman who, whose heart beats after the Lord. I don't know where you're at today, but we can all do this. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus and trust him and know that he is best for us. And what he did on the cross is final and it is complete and it is what changes our lives. We can come into relationship with the God who created us for himself if we will call upon the name of Jesus. Samson was a hot mess, as some say. But Jesus is the real true deliverer. All throughout the book of Judges, it's pointing, all throughout the Bible, it's pointing to Jesus and what he would ultimately do for us. And this morning, I hope that you have come to a place in your life where you've said yes to Jesus. This is what I fear in in American Christianity today. And that is we are so enamored with the things of this world. I'm speaking, as I preach, I'm speaking to myself. That we're so enamored and so influenced and so inundated with the things of our own culture that we don't really even see our own need. That we would literally live in a world where sin and wickedness is all around us. And Jesus is knocking on our door saying, I have a better plan for your life. I have a better goal for your life. I can actually fix your mess. I can fix your junk. And we turn a blind eye to it. We turn a deaf ear to it. And we don't even acknowledge him. I think today in our churches, that's where a whole lot of Americans are is that when the preacher stands and preaches and the word is proclaimed, we can't even hear it because we don't ultimately want to hear it. And I hope that's not the case for us this morning. But wherever you're at today, maybe you're far from God and the fact that you've never placed your faith in Jesus this morning can be the day of salvation for you. Maybe there was a time in your life where you gave your life to Jesus. You knowingly and willingly surrendered and said yes to Jesus, forsook your sin, received his forgiveness. But today you're walking at, at best a guilty distance. Today can be the day where you come home. Maybe you're, you're, you're living for Jesus and your relationship is hot, but you just need to maybe pray through something or whatever it is. Maybe God's leading you to join our church. Many of you have been visiting for weeks, and it's time for you to say, yes, I want to commit to this local church. I want God to use me in this local church. Whatever it is this morning, let's put our faith and trust in Jesus because he is our deliverer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you and we ask that you would speak into our hearts. And help us, Lord, to see how great you are, to see how wonderful you are, see, to see your love for us. God, may we not be like the people of Israel in the days of Samson who didn't even know that their life was a mess. But God, I praise you that even when we don't know that, you still come calling. And you still do things in our midst to provoke us and to lead us to a place of brokenness and repentance and faith. And may that be true today. I pray for the one who's lost today. May they be saved. God, I pray for those who are walking into guilty distance. May they come home. God, I pray for those that you're leading to join our church. May today be the day that you confirm that in their hearts. So bless us as we move into a time of invitation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand across the